Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We thank you for that as we wrap up another week. What a week it has been. What a focus on the... Hurricane Laura, the damage that was done, and any resulting rainfall, maybe not as much as uh, we had hoped for in some places, and too much in other places. We'll talk about it with Dennis Toddy, director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub, and take a look at the uh, very dry conditions many parts of the Midwest are dealing with as we go into harvest time. We'll talk about the ag economy today with the chief economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton, and we'll talk about a partnership, a conservation partnership that the National Cattlemen's Beef Association has entered into. We'll talk about that with Ethan Lane with NCBA. All that coming up on today's program. But let's start it off with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, as we focus on uh, the uh, storm damage. Mike, thank you for joining us as we think about infrastructure and ports and traffic flow on the on the waterways what can you tell us what has uh what damage has laura caused well it, it certainly has been a real catastrophic event for the that affected area when you however when you look at it from a soybean and grain logistics perspective the fact that the hurricane kind of split the goalposts if you will between new orleans on one side and houston area on the other side uh there's a lot of export grain and soybean export facilities located in that in those two areas and the fact that the the storm really went between it um, you know certainly had some damage to the communities and some of the the agricultural production areas um, notably corn in that area but it's from a grain logistics perspective it really um, we really kind of emerged from it with very limited damage the lower mississippi river kind of near New Orleans, that's more concentrated with soybean and corn export facilities. When you look at the Texas Gulf, as you get closer to Houston, a lot of wheat gets exported from that area, minimal amounts of soybeans and, and corn. So you know, when you look at it from a soybean and corn perspective, that, that lower Mississippi River near New Orleans is really key. And so the fact that the storm made landfall uh, west of that area uh, was, was very favorable from a logistics perspective. What about barge traffic? Uh, has that been disrupted? Yeah, you know, it, not significantly. Now, you know, when you, of course, you, you have to make adjustments. If you're, if you're approaching an area with significant rainfall, you know, of course, the storm makes landfall, and then it makes a pretty dramatic right turn uh, to head east. You know, that's something that, you know, barge traffic has had to be mindful of with and the <clears throat> possibility of pop-up tornadoes. So it's been something just to navigate and adjust to, but it, it really hasn't had a, a, a significant impact on, uh, you know, our supply chain and, and, and the flow of it. And, of course, we our traffic really does pick up with the harvest surge, so um, that's, that's notable to keep in mind as well. We see the pictures of the of the damage that has been done um, to people's homes and and to businesses. Has there been infrastructure damage at the ports at all? Haven't haven't seen anything significant, which is which is really uh, you know that's been really important to see. And 
you know, we don't need, you know, one more gut punch um, with our broader economy and with, with agriculture specifically. So good to see that. Um, I have not, you know, got the feelers out and I have not heard of any kind of significant damage, you know, as of yet. Um, not only with the, the, the export terminals down in the, along the coastal regions, but, you know, you have these barge loading facilities all up and down the Mississippi River. And so, you know, that was something also to keep being attentive to when that storm made that right turn after landfall would cut back across, you know, some of these inland waterways haven't seen any significant damage yet. So that's something that's very favorable. Mike is harvest starts in some places and getting close in a lot of other places. How are we uh, set for transportation going into this harvest? You know, I, I think we're we're pretty well positioned. Um, you know, the you know you know clearly there's going to be you know some issues with production in certain pockets of the country where you've got um, significant uh, volumes. But then, you know, in the state of Iowa, you know, I was just driving through the state yesterday and just saw so many cornfields. And I've I've lived in the state most of my life. I've never seen such widespread damage. To a corn crop, as I saw, as I saw yesterday when I was driving throughout the state, and so you know, so that obviously runs into the calculation as well. You know, we 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 build our handling and our processing and our logistics. We try to scale it to production, and now all of a sudden we've got some a real kind of unpredictable, you know, seismic event, which with derecho and with and with drought, um, that's impacted. That's going to impact our production figures had some damage to our storage facilities as well. And so, you know, we're still trying to emerge from that. But I think overall, uh, with our infrastructure, we're, we're pretty well positioned. The Corps of Engineers is still making progress on these five Illinois River locks and dams. Um, those should be completed by the end of October. So that's going to, that will overlap, that construction and rehabilitation period will indeed over, overlap with our, our harvest. But what we're trying to do is making sure that's as minimal as possible. So obviously that's going to have an impact as well. But again, once once those projects are completed, we'll be pleased to see uh, a series of locks and dams that are better maintained, better positioned to handle agricultural commodities and other commodities that use that system. Yeah, for a while it looked like it harvest might be a little later than we thought when we had the cool weather then all of a sudden it turned really hot really dry and now things have kind of uh, fast-tracked a little bit forward and it looks like harvest uh, may actually get started a little earlier than we thought so there is going to be that uh, overlap while we're waiting on that uh, uh, that construction to be done and there's also the river level issue uh, because how dry it has been yeah and that's something that you know we're you know always trying to you know, be attentive to, you know, the, you know, the, the reason why we have these locks and dams along the inland waterway system is to, when you have low water events, is that you restrain enough water to maintain a nine foot or greater navigational channel in the upper Mississippi River, the Illinois, the Ohio River, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, as we're seeing those river levels drop, you know, the, the good news is that we have these locks and dams that can help maintain that. But, you know, there there have been occasions south of our locks and dams where we've had low water conditions. And every time you've got, uh, you know, low water, you have to restrict the amount of freight that you put in each barge. 
that just changes the economics of our of our industry and it and it really makes it harder to maintain profitability so clearly that's something that we need to really take into consideration mm-hmm. you know we we just seem to be fluctuating between one year at high water the other year mm-hmm. it's low water so something to keep mindful of yeah we'll be watching it closely and talking with you again throughout harvest thanks mike thank you mike Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Well, let's talk about weather and the aftermath of uh, Laura. And as we head into harvest season, Dennis Toddy, Director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub, joins us next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And joining us now is Dennis Toddy, Director of USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, thanks for being with us as we continue to watch the um, situation in the areas impacted by Hurricane Laura, the damage, the devastation, people trying to recover and rebuild from that. Uh, other parts of the country, sometimes we see uh, a push of, of moisture up into the Midwest after an event like that. What do we expect to see, or is it as much as we thought we might see from this hurricane? We are getting uh, a push of moisture up into the Midwest, but kind of a glancing blow on the Midwest. Um, the The remnants of of the hurricane were, you know, still considered a tropical storm, I believe, actually tropical depression now, but it's moved up into southern Missouri, and then it's going to make a right turn and kind of head up the Ohio Valley. So it's going to be bringing rainfall to that area over the next couple days. Uh, We'll give them a nice shot of rain uh, as we get towards the end of the growing season here. Some of those areas, unfortunately, you know, it's not, they won't turn down the rain, but they aren't in need of as much rainfall as some other areas are. So they get the benefit. Uh, areas further north uh, will, you know, that really are showing the dryness are not going to be getting the benefit from that. They will be seeing some chances for precipitation with some storms uh, going on today and into early next week. But unfortunately, it's going to be too little bit too too little too late. Unfortunately, uh, some drier. Uh... I should say some cooler temperatures on the way. Is this a big shift as we're heading into September that uh, um, we should be watching this pattern now? Is this uh, the big turnoff to cool weather to stay? Well, I don't think it's going to be a complete turnoff to into cool weather to stay. I would venture that we will probably get back warmer later on. This will be a marked shift, especially in the northern plains into the central Midwest. Actually, all, all across the central U.S., this will be a big shift. The coldest area is going to be, uh, compared to average, is going to be the northern plains into the central Midwest as we get into that first week of September. Uh, much, much cooler. Uh, in fact, uh, we're likely to see some 30s uh, up in the northern plains area, the far northern plains, Montana, parts of the Dakotas. Um, there may be some, even some freezing uh, temperatures at higher elevations, but much, much cooler, much drier. Uh, unfortunately, that, again, comes a little bit too late after the heat we saw this week uh, that's helped to dry things out across the, the main part of the Corn Belt. We've talked about flash drought and uh, the areas impacted by it. Uh, how widespread is this dry area now? It is uh, re-expanding. I tweeted about that, kind of re-expanding. 
we, we know about the dry areas out in, you know, the, the high plains out into uh, the west. But and we still have our problems centered on western Iowa. That that area in Iowa is expanding, and expanding uh, across northern Illinois, northern Indiana, and into Ohio and southern parts of Michigan. Uh, widespread uh, D zero abnormally dry in the U.S. Drought Monitor and D one moderate drought still have D two and up to D three in western Iowa, um, where you still have, you have the drought and the derecho issues. Uh, seeing lots of reports of people mentioning, uh, you know, soils finally drying out, the heat of the last week um, being too much for the limited soil moisture available and uh, reaching early maturity on, on definitely on corn and even some soybeans starting to, to, to mature a bit early. Uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, not, not too much concern about freeze this year because we're going to be shutting a lot of things down far earlier than expected. You know, most of Iowa right now is covered in some form, most of northern Illinois and, uh, and, and adjacent areas. Wow. So drought following that line of, of duration of, of the storms. I mean, it's like we've talked that there wasn't as much rain and duration as you might have thought, and then you have drought just kind of following right behind it. Right. And, and, you know, the, the double whammy really did things in, um, you know, as, as people, you know, as, as people, as crop people know, sometimes uh, a crop can handle one stress, but you stress in, in, in two ways and you really do things in. And that really seemed to be the case as you had drought in this area. There was some rainfall, but we need multiple inches of rainfall. And, and there just wasn't that along with, with most of this area. And saw reports from some extension folks that said, uh, you know, some of the damaged crop, you know, a couple of days after that, they started seeing the, uh, the, the stress showing up more readily uh, because the, the crop was stressed by the duration and then you had dry soils and heat along with it. So right along with that combination. Uh, we are still trying to assess, you know, the overall impact of the duration uh, from, from an acreage and, and crop standpoint, uh, the first of acres being uh, disked under saw this week uh, where they were completely zeroed out and nothing else to do with it. So they were disking it under and some of the, you know, relating to some of the problems they're having with that. So now you get in that situation, you've missed range, you've missed rains that could have helped. Uh, now you think about, well, now I want to get into the fields, I'm going to start harvesting now, you might as well, you just didn't let it wait a while. But uh, So now you're playing that kind of game of back and forth, although some areas could still certainly use it for the beans maybe. Sure. The, you know, the, the rainfalls that are coming from the, the, the remnants of the hurricane will probably help beans in that eastern area a bit. Uh, so that's, that's a positive for them, uh, missing out some of the areas that could really use it. As I mentioned, you know, people are reporting beans showing enough stress that they're starting to turn over at this point. The, the, the thing we do really, certainly we don't want to get things too wet, let people harvest, let people do what they need to. And it's going to be a slog for some of these people because of, of the downed crops and, and the slow process they're going to have to go through. But certainly if people are going to do cover crops, we'd like to get a little bit of moisture back in that topsoil to at least uh, help them with cover crop planting. Uh, to get that on and, and take advantage of that. We don't want to miss out on, on some of the cover crop issues if we have that opportunity this year. We're talking with Dennis Toddy, director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Dennis, you talked a little bit about uh, uh, temperatures and, and some rainfall in, in September. What What is shaping up as the pattern you see overall for this fall? 
the 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 long term look for the fall is uh, from NOAA's Climate Prediction Center is still saying likely warmer than average, and then uh, some dryness uh, in in kind of the the central plains. Not good indications overall uh, across the main part of the Midwest or northern plains. Uh, so. You know the takeaway on that. You say, well, it's 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 likely near average. It's probably not going to be near average, but we don't have enough indications right now. But the downside is the places where we are very dry, we're going to need to get some more rainfall. We'd like to see at least average, if not a little bit above average, to start to refill that soil moisture profile. Right now, we don't have indications of that. And then you know the the dry areas on top of existing dry areas will be some problem for the for the dry soils. But it's mainly central plains, so that's more of a problem out in Colorado. Parts of Nebraska and, and Kansas actually are in pretty good shape because they've been having some rainfalls over the last several weeks that have, have been missing some of the areas further north. So, uh, again, with the early start on, on, on harvest happening, you know, unless people had to do a replant and they were late moving on, I, I don't see this, this fall harvest being too much of an issue. I was just looking at the corn progress, and, and corn is a little bit behind in the eastern corn belt. I would expect with the heat the last week, that will have pushed things along, too. So the only problem I really see this fall coming is is the places where we had the widespread damage crop. It's going to be a slow process in trying to harvest. I don't think freeze is going to come into play much at all uh, as a concern. You know, it, it depends on where you're at, obviously. But overall, it's kind of been a tale of two seasons this year weather-wise. It, you know, it's really funny because I, I was harassing the state climatologist in Illinois that they have bounced back and forth a couple times this year. Uh, you know, they were, we were wet coming in and then we turned dry and then they got wet again and now we're turning dry again. And he said, and he, we were joking about that, that we, we really have some places have bounced back and forth a couple times. Uh, Iowa started off wet, dried out, and it stayed dry all through this. We've had a little bit of bouncing back and forth in the northern plains. So we really have had a, a very interesting year from a, from a precip standpoint. Uh, lots of other things, the derecho, you know, uh, talking about derechos, we had another one go through South Dakota last night, uh, eastern South Dakota, not as severe as the one we had in Iowa, but there were reports of winds up to 100 miles per hour, so it probably had some crop damage due to the derecho up in that area, and there was a little bit of structural damage I saw too. So. Um, I think people will be happy for 2020 to be finished uh, with, with the number of different things that we've had going on this year. Of course, I think that's what we said. A lot of us said in 2019 as well. So maybe 2021 will be the good year, right? So we, we'll hope for that. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. Always appreciate it. You guys have a great day. Take care. Dennis Toddy, Director of the USDA Midwest Climate Hub. Yeah, kind of like the Cubs used to say, wait till next year, right? So uh, it's kind of the way we've been with the weather here for a while. Up next, we'll talk with the Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, let's talk things over with John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, good to talk with you again. Here we are about to head into harvest, and uh, you know, it looks like the crop may be a little smaller than we thought earlier. And meanwhile, our sales to China have been uh, ticking up. Uh, what are your thoughts on the ag economy heading into fall? 
Well, I, you know, I've been, I was on the phone with, with two producers uh, yesterday, one in Missouri and one in Iowa, uh, and both of them have communicated, you know, how rapidly the, the crop has deteriorated uh, over the last uh, uh, few weeks due to these, these flash droughts as, as well as the, uh, the ratio. Uh, so I think we are going to see these yields come down. We saw them come down with the Pro Farmer Tour. Uh, they're still pretty high. I mean, I think that's uh, to be put in perspective, but I think we're going to see them come down uh, from USDA's lofty numbers. Uh, at the same time, we do see uh, new crop sales to China uh, accelerating. I think we're, we're going to see uh, you know, more corn, more sorghum, uh, more soybeans uh, moving to, to China this, this next crop year. Uh, USDA's got exports to China this next fiscal year jumping by more than 30%. So uh, those all bode well for, for higher commodity prices. Uh, and then we also heard about CFAT 2.0, so that, that also will help. Yeah, waiting to see, perhaps after Labor Day, something on another round of CFAP. Um, so what what holds the markets back, though? Stocks? You know, I think, you know, one one thing is certainly while these sales are, are, are coming in at a rapid clip, uh, they're bigger than, than previous sales numbers we've seen for some of these commodities, uh, they're still outstanding sales. So we, we need to see uh, those outstanding sales turn into shipments. I think that's what the market's watching for. Uh, we don't know yet how much of a crop size reduction we're going to see. Uh, on the livestock side, we've got, you know, you know, significant production of milk. We've got heavier uh, cattle uh, in the market. So, so there's some things weighing on prices on that side as well. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty uh, in the marketplace there, Mike. We're talking with John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, we think back to pre-COVID, which seems like a long time ago, but it was just earlier this year. Uh, the general economy was doing pretty well, but the ag economy wasn't doing very well going into COVID. Uh, it's always interesting to see the relationship. Sometimes we see them going different ways, the general economy and the ag economy, sometimes more uh, in sync. What do you think as we go into fall and hopefully towards the end of COVID, how do the two work together, you think? Because we've certainly seen the impact of, of COVID-19 on the general economy, also impacting then the ag economy. Well, you, you think about over the last decade, we added 23 million jobs in the U.S. economy. And in two months, we lost them. Uh, we lost nearly all of them. So a pretty tough uh, U.S. economy that we're in now. We've been in a tough ag economy for for five years now, I think low interest rates have certainly helped, uh, you know, keep asset values firm, keep land values firm across farm country. I think the assistance through MFP and CFAP has helped keep uh, asset values uh, firm. But I think as we, you know, get into the fall, uh, you know, more and more states uh, get to, you know, full capacity in terms of reopening. Hopefully kids get back into school. Uh, we start to see the U.S. economy recover and, and with it, some of the demand uh, in, in the farm economy. We start to see sales pick up uh, a little bit, but we have to remember uh, 25, 30% of our agricultural product sales come in the export market. And so uh, not only do we need to look at the U.S. macro economy, but global economies, uh, and we still see GDP growth is projected to be negative for many of our top trading partners. So that, that could provide some, some headwinds to a full recovery for our sector. And it's yet to be determined or yet to be seen how much of the damage from COVID and how much of the change brought about by COVID uh, lasts post-COVID. 
Right. I mean, you know, you think about our ethanol friends. I mean, uh, people aren't going back to work anytime soon. They're not driving uh, at the rate they used to. That's gonna that's gonna weigh on ethanol demand for for some time. And when you think about a 10% blend capacity, uh, we're not going to need as many bushels uh, of corn uh, to produce uh, biofuels as we did in years past, unless we significantly expand our export potential. Uh, for ethanol, so I think when you look around the around the sector, you got to think where's the next demand boost coming from? Where's the next uh, revenue boost come from? And and I think uh, we still don't have the answer to that just yet. Let's look on the livestock side. Uh, we talked uh, yesterday with folks at the National Pork Board. They've seen tremendous growth in sales and demand for ground pork. I mean, there have been some things people have discovered since they've stayed at home more and they're preparing more meals at home. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that trend continues. But overall, what do you see for the livestock sector moving forward? Well, I, you know, one, one thing that's, that, that I think is a bright spot is, is, you know, that sector recovered a lot faster uh, than many thought it would in terms of at one point in time in, in late April, Mike, we were some 30 or 40 percent uh, below year-ago levels in terms of processing capacity. Uh, we've come back pretty quick. Uh, we need to. We've got plenty of market-ready animals that need to move through uh, the supply chain. We saw cattle on feed in, in August was a, a, the highest we've seen since 1996. Uh, we also saw placements came in 11% higher, uh, and they're heavier animals. So there's plenty of, of meat coming down the supply chain. Uh, so it really is a, a demand issue. It's a consumption issue uh, weighing on that market, uh, you know, in, in the next few months. But I think as the economy starts to pick up, you know, as GDP growth starts to recover, uh, that's going to bode well for for livestock, especially some of our uh, more expensive cuts of meat. What about dairy? Oh, geez, I I can't tell you which way uh, things are going to go in the dairy industry uh, right now. You know, a couple months ago we had cheese uh, at a record high. Uh, It fell sharply. I think it's, it's, it's stabilized. Uh, a little bit. I think the big unknown in dairy is, you know, think about how much milk uh, goes into the food service and school business. If not, not a lot of kids are in school this fall. That's, you know, I've seen estimates that that's going to put a six to ten percent dent uh, in fluid milk demand. That milk's then going to need to find a home uh, somewhere else. Uh, hopefully, uh, people are putting more milk in their fridge at home. Uh, but I think there's still some some unknowns uh, in the dairy uh, sector as well. We we know we're going to get Another CFAP 2.0 is going to touch dairy. I don't know yet, you know, if we're going to see an expansion on the food box program in any next uh, round of support. That certainly helped help the dairy farmer, those cheese purchases. Uh, but I think there's still some uncertainty ahead in that sector, too. Uh, we're starting to see projections of increased export sales uh, for the coming year. Um, do you agree with that optimism? Well, it, it, you know, we go from exports of $135 billion, uh, give or take, to $140 billion, uh, give or take. Uh, sales to China jumped by $4.5 billion uh, in fiscal year 2021. I think, you know, when you look at USDA's projections, they're assuming uh, we start to see some economic recovery. They're assuming stronger sales to Mexico, to Canada, Japan, South Korea, as well as China. Uh, so I think it's it's definitely achievable. We've hit those numbers before. Uh, you know, just a few short years ago, we were exporting 142 to $145 billion in, in agricultural products. So I definitely think it's it's doable, uh, but but a lot of things have to fall into place uh, to, to make sure we hit that target. 
course, whenever you're talking sales to China, we know that uh, that that can change. It seems like in a hurry. Right now, it's uh, going pretty good, but we know how how those things change. We've also seen that while important, uh, increased sales to China alone uh, doesn't always get the big bounce in the markets that some thought maybe it would. Right. I mean, you know. Mexico, Canada, Japan, South Korea, and China represent 50% of our agricultural trade. We, we are seeing, uh, you know, more sales to China. You know, it's been, uh, to the first half of this year, it's really been on the pork side. It's been on the on the poultry side. Uh, we saw some of the beef that was probably destined for Europeans uh, go to China as well. Uh, so that's been strong. And then on the feed grain side for this new crop, as they start to rebuild uh, their hog and poultry uh, operations. There's going to be demand for feedstock, so that's that's been good. But you can't have all your eggs in one basket. And more sales to China uh, doesn't necessarily mean uh, things are going to be a lot better. We've got, uh, you know, we we got USMCA, but we need to get the can- Canadians to do the right thing on dairy. They're not playing by the rules uh, at this point. So you know, we've got to pay attention in all of our markets uh, and be competitive there uh, to see our sales continue to grow. And let's talk about that with USMCA. We've heard some concerns with some trade issues still with Mexico and the dairy industry concerned about uh, China, I mean, about Canada. Well, you know, you look at what, what Canada did with their special milk classes over recent years, and, and they agreed to, to change their pricing system to align more uh, with the United States. They, they've got a make allowance that they're allowed to use, but then they start playing games with their tariff rate quota. Uh, and, and potentially prohibiting uh, us from really growing that market. They gave us 3, 3.6% of their dairy market in USMCA, uh, and we look forward to growing that market. But you, you got to play by the rules, and I think Lighthizer and uh, you know U.S. Dairy Export Council, National Milk, and IDFA have been uh, out front and center trying to get Canada to play by the rules. All right, John, always good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Uh, Great to have your perspective on uh, these economic issues. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you so much, Mark. All right. John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Lots of moving pieces here for sure. Up next, we're going to talk with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. NCBA recently signed a Memorandum of Understanding with Ducks Unlimited and Safari Club International. We'll tell you about this conservation partnership. That's next here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association and the Public Lands Council has signed a Memorandum of Understanding with Ducks Unlimited and Safari Club International, forming a conservation partnership. Here to tell us about it is Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Ethan, thanks for joining us. Uh, Tell us about this partnership and the significance of it. Well, good morning, Mike. This is a a partnership that is several years in the making. Uh, You know, we spend a lot of our time in Washington in conversations about the conflict between conservation interests, sportsmen's interests, and the interests of 
our cattle producers around the country. And a lot of that comes down to land use uh, and competition over access to some of those areas, particularly in the western states. But, you know, more and more we're seeing some of that crop up uh, in the way some of these conservation groups like Ducks Unlimited and others are going about doing conservation in the Midwest, whether that's in prairie pothole country, places like Nebraska and the Dakotas. So this has prompted a lot of conversation amongst our groups about how we work together better to avoid these conflicts and also educate uh, some of the sporting community about how necessary our producers are to creating the habitat that those sportsmen need to enjoy uh, those pursuits. And, and this ultimately culminated in this memorandum of understanding that outlines how we're going to work together to educate uh, not just our own communities, whether that's the, uh, the, the, the cattle producing community or the sportsman community, but the general public as well, who really just don't understand how these things work together. You know, you know and I know and our listeners know that there are 650 million acres, give or take, of grazing and pasture land in this country. That is the basis of wildlife conservation in this country, but we very, very rarely get credit for that in our industry. So a lot of this is about making sure we're getting other voices in the conversation to tell the American people about the good work that we do in the cattle industry. Well, there's been, of course, uh, well-documented the, the differences between uh, the cattle industry and these groups at, at times, differing opinions and thoughts on, on how things should be done. So this is a chance Absolutely. to highlight the things you have in common, right? Well, it is. And it's a chance also, you know, just to be blunt, to, to kind of separate some of the real sportsmen. And I'm using that term pretty specifically. Safari Club International represents true sportsmen. These are, these are men and women that get out in the country, they hunt, they fish, and, and they appreciate what ranchers do. Ducks Unlimited is the same. Uh, and, you know, I would say that almost every cattle producer in the country would count themselves as, as a hunter or a sportsman. It's just part of our culture and lifestyle as well. But you have a lot of these groups we've started to call green decoy groups. They're sort of, they, they claim to be hunting and fishing groups, but really they're, they're environmental groups. And, and so it's important for us to identify those real sportsmen's groups um, and, and have some dialogue and, and, and conversation with them and be working together where we can. On that 90% maybe we agree on, you know, we're never going to agree 100% with them, and that's okay. Um, we can carve out those areas where we don't, and we can work on those, but identifying those partnerships with true sportsmen is really important to amplifying our voice in Washington. You know, I mean, we have a big footprint in agriculture in, in D.C. We punch above our weight more often than not, but we have to be able to make friends in some of these areas to get what we need done, whether it's in the farm bill or in any environmental legislation that's moving forward or regulatory work, you know, whether it's Department of Interior or EPA or elsewhere. We're talking with Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I was going to ask you, uh, what are some of the ways that you see this partnership working? And I think you just described one of them, uh, a voice in Washington, D.C., a more unified voice, perhaps, on some issues. A more unified voice. This this creates a basis, Mike, for us to to kind of have some some so that it's not a, a you know reinventing the wheel when we find an issue where we might be able to work together to to educate on some of these things and and help people understand that that we're trying to achieve the same goal. We might just be achieving it in different areas. And I'm hopeful that creating a structure like this where we're working through some of the existing resources that are already out there. Um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which has been involved in this process, we're hopeful that they'll be able to join in signing this MOU here shortly. Um, has some, some resources and some programs available. Uh, one of them is uh, Partners uh, Partners for Fish and Wildlife. It's a, it's a program that, that really works to, to empower 
landowners in the in the uh, cattle producing community um, on these conservation issues, sort of like some of the NRCS programs that we maybe are a little more familiar with. Um, working through some of those programs to achieve those conservation goals um, perhaps pr- provides some new avenues that um, are going to be less objectionable to our community. We want to make sure these things are being done in a way that you know, the sportsman's community goes home feeling like they've achieved the conservation goal they want to achieve to have wildlife out there to hunt, and we want to do it in a way that doesn't make it feel like this is coming out of our pocketbooks. Because at the end of the day, you know, profitability of our producers is, is our top objective. So uh, doing this in a way that everybody wins um, is, is the most important goal here. And, and, you know, our argument would be that we're already doing it. Uh, so a lot of this is just making sure that we're getting the proper credit and people are being educated about the good work that we're doing. Um, so, And we heard a lot of that on the ground in Florida this week. You know, the tour that we took out into the, we took some swamp buggies out on a tour with all of these groups and um, spread members of each group out on these buggies. And what was really cool is one of the guys from Safari Club when we got back said, man, I had no idea what you guys were doing. He said, what can 60,000 hunters around the country with Safari Club be doing to better educate? Because people need to know the work that you're doing on the ground. That, at the end of the day, is why we did what we did with this MOU and what we're hoping to achieve. Yeah, better understanding of each other. And real quick, it also highlights uh, uh, a long history of successful voluntary conservation programs. At the end of the day, that's the most important word in this MOU is voluntary. We, we, we are never going to solve these problems or address any of these issues uh, at, the, at the tip of a, a weapon like, like federal regulation or legislation. Uh, where, where these items work best, where these programs work best, is where there's incentive to engage voluntarily, where it makes sense for our producers to do it. It makes sense for their bottom line. It makes sense for their resources. So that has to be the beginning and end of these conversations is voluntary engagement uh, to, to get to a point that, that works for everybody. And, and that's what all these groups are committed to. That really is going to help us uh, in conversations moving forward in this administration and the next uh, to get what we want. All right. Ethan, thank you very much. We appreciate Appreciate having you with us and let us know about this conservation partnership, NCBA, Ducks Unlimited, Safari International. All right. Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. That wraps it up for today. Thank you for joining us. Have a safe day, everyone. Thanks for being with us on AOA. AOA.